This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 23, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. It can be maddening to be a federal judge compelled to apply wrong-headed Supreme Court precedent. In one particular case recently in the D.C. Circuit, economic liberty butted heads and lost, again, to rational basis review. Roger Pilon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute, explains. This case was decided by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, and as such, as a lower court, it has to abide by Supreme Court precedents. And so what we had was a decision that was unanimous by the three-judge panel that followed Supreme Court precedent, but it led to a concurrence by by Judge Janice Rogers Brown that was a ringing condemnation of those precedents. And I'm going to quote from some of that language because it is something that we don't hear very often. Janice Rogers Brown joined the uh, D.C. Circuit Court from the California Supreme Court. She was an appointee of George W. Bush back in 2005. And she was something of a um, controversial uh, nominee because she had a record on the California Supreme Court of taking very libertarian positions with respect to the law. And she hasn't disappointed in this case. The case is called Hein uh, Hettinger v. uh, U.S. uh, of A. And it deals with with factual situations that every American would identify with. Um, Mr. Hettinger came uh, to the United States after World War II, and he began as a hired hand on a dairy ranch. Uh, By 1990, he owned half a dozen dairies, and he decided to uh, build his own bottling business. And because he was both a dairy farmer and had several farms and a bottler, he had a certain competitive advantage over other dairy farms. Well, you can imagine under the unbelievably complex uh, dairy uh, regulations that have arisen since the uh, uh, New Deal that uh, this was something that the regulations were not countenance because it was unequal competition. And he was able to, in fact, arrange with Costco to lower the average price of milk 20 cents a gallon in Southern California. And uh, that led to two senators, one from each party, pushing through a change in the law which disadvantaged him. And so what we do is look at the opinion from Judge Janice Rogers Brown, and what we see is just an absolutely ringing condemnation of this statute and this statutory change that was introduced. She says, and I'm going to quote here, given the longstanding precedents in this area, no other result than the one that the court handed down was possible. Our precedents forced the Hedingas to make a difficult legal argument. No doubt they would have preferred a simpler one, that the operation and production of their enterprises had been impermissibly collectivized, but a long line of constitutional adjudication precluded that claim. And then she goes on to say that American cowboy capitalism was long ago disarmed 
by a democratic process increasingly dominated by powerful groups with economic interests antithetical to competitors and consumers. And the courts from which the victims of burdensome regulation sought protection have been negotiating the terms of surrender since the 1930s. That's language you don't usually see coming from a judge, especially an appellate court judge. And what she's pointing to is a case starting, well, Nibia v. New York in 1934, where the court held that a a store that sold milk for two cents below the price that was required by the state statute was therefore a criminal. And they uh, upheld that statute. And then in a case called Caroline Products, which was another milk case, in 1938, we had the granddaddy of so much of the mischief that takes place in our law today. That was the case that in famous footnote four distinguished two kinds of rights, fundamental and non-fundamental. If a law implicated fundamental rights like speech and voting, the court would apply what was called strict scrutiny and the law would probably be found unconstitutional. By contrast, if the law implicated a non-fundamental right, and here we have economic liberty, then the court would apply the so-called rational basis test, which is no test at all. It says that if there is some ground, some reasonable ground, if you can imagine some reason that the legislature would have to pass the statute, that's good enough. And so you can imagine what happened thereafter, that every regulatory statute sailed right through, because there's always some reason for it. And this is what leads uh, Janice Rogers Brown to kind of something of a field day in in writing this opinion. She, and I hear I'm going to quote again from her. She says, the judiciary justifies its reluctance to intervene by claiming incompetence. In other words, they are not competent to make these kinds of decisions. She then says, apparently, judges lack the acumen to recognize corruption, self-interest, or arbitrariness in the economic realm, a deferring to the majoritarian uh, imperative. She continues, the practical effect of rational basis review of economic regulation is the absence of any check on the group interests that all too often control democratic process. And, of course, that's exactly what was happening here. She continues, it allows the legislature free reign to subjugate the common good and individual liberty to the electoral calculus of politicians and the whim of majorities or the self-interest of factions. And then she quotes the framers, not surprisingly. She quotes Hamilton on the role of the judiciary. She quotes Madison on the role of factions, what today we call special interests. And interestingly, from Cato's point of view, she quotes our own senior fellow, Randy Barnett, and Ilya Soman, and H.L. Mencken. And so there is a good group of libertarians that play into this opinion. And then she concludes with a final word, which seems to me just captures it all. The constitutional guarantee of liberty deserves more respect, a lot more. You made reference to the rational basis test, and I think it's probably worth reiterating. You said any imagined potential rational basis uh, for a law when this test is applied is de facto rational basis. That is, if you can imagine a set of circumstances where it might be, there might be a rational basis. That's, as applied, typically good enough. Absolutely. And in fact, she quotes there a 1993 decision written by, dare I say, Justice Clarence Thomas, 
FCC v. Beach Communications, in which he says, if there is any reasonably conceivable state of facts that could provide a rational basis for the statute, that's good enough. That means that the legislature, federal, state, or local, pretty much has a free hand when it comes to economic liberty. And that, of course, is what is wrong with the rational basis test. It is judicial abdication, plain and simple. Has the court had opportunities recently to address this issue? Every once in a while, you do see a court that ignores the precedent or tries to find some rationale to get out from under these precedents. We had it a few years back in the case of the sale of caskets. Many states require that caskets be sold only by uh, funeral directors who have to go through the expense of becoming funeral directors and so forth, as opposed to something like uh, Walmart. And so what you had was a split in the circuits, namely the Sixth Circuit has found that this statute in its circuit, in the case before it, would not withstand even rational basis scrutiny because it was patently designed to protect one competitor against another competitor to the disadvantage of the public. The Eighth Circuit, by contrast, went the other way. So on this particular case, we have a split in the circuits, which is ordinarily the ground for the Supreme Court to grant cert to resolve this disagreement between the two circuits. But as of yet, the Supreme Court has not taken either case, and it's not likely that it will, at least for a while, because it will mean revisiting this whole area of our jurisprudence and the courts are reluctant or the Supreme Court has shown itself to be reluctant to do that even though there are cases like the one that just came before the D.C. Circuit that cry out for revisiting this error, this fundamental error in our constitutional jurisprudence whereby we speak of two kinds of rights fundamental and non-fundamental. That would have been heresy to the founders. They took economic liberty to be as important as any other liberty. Indeed, millions of people came to this country precisely so that they could enjoy economic liberty. Roger Pallon is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at cato.org.